1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews.
2: Isn't something how there are certain mechanisms within appliances that make sure they turn off when they're overheated? But people can't, you know, if you ever got your hair dryer going, you know, 90 miles an hour, it eventually be like too hot and shut off. If you tip over a space heater, it, it now they have that built in that way that it turns off so that when it gets overheated, it won't catch your house on fire. But Americans, you know, we don't in Western culture, we don't know how to turn off. We don't know how to enter a Sabbath rest. Is your
1: life overheated and you don't know what to do about it? Like Pastor Gary says, when your appliances overheat, they know to turn off. But maybe you've forgotten how. Pastor Gary finds the answer in the book of Hebrews in today's message. The answer is to rest. Chances are you need it today. So listen in to hear what it means to find a Sabbath rest. The kind of rest that truly changes and rejuvenates you. But don't leave it at that. Make sure you make space for that rest in your own life. No matter how full your day is today, set aside some time for rest. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: So the writer of Hebrews is going to use this as the first example here in chapter 4. He says, don't miss out on Jesus because of unbelief or disobedience. Like the Hebrew people missed out on the promised land because of unbelief and disobedience. It was a lesser rest that God promised them. You'll have rest in the promised land. I mean, it was a lesser rest because when they got there, they still had enemies to fight and giants in the land. They still had some issues. It's an earthly rest but at least it's better than slavery. It's a lesser rest than Christ, however. And so again, in this greater than, superior than comparison through the book of Hebrews, the writer here is saying the Jewish people missed out on a lesser rest. They didn't enter the promised land. They all died in the wilderness. Their bodies were scattered in the desert. Their children went into the promised land, but they missed out because of unbelief and disobedience. Don't miss out on the greater rest of Christ and having a relationship with Him because of unbelief or disobedience. So that's the first thing that he talks about here. Then he mixes within this chapter. He's going to go back and forth. He's going to to talk about their history of disobedience in the wilderness. And then he's going to talk about the Sabbath rest. And he's going to come back and talk about the history with Joshua, okay? But in the middle of this chapter, he talks about a rest in verse 3. Now, we who have believed, believed in Jesus, enter that rest, the greater rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Talking about the Hebrew slaves who were set free because they didn't believe they didn't enter his rest. Now, I love the next sentence here. Look at the rest of verse 3. And yet his work has been finished since the creation of the world. Verse 4, for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. Now, I have that verse 4 underlined, and here's why. Because the writer of Hebrew, have you ever done this when you're like thinking to yourself, there's a verse somewhere in the Bible. It's somewhere in the Bible. I know it's in there. And it basically says this. That's that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 4, verse 4. He's like, somewhere... Somewhere in the Scriptures, he's spoken about the seventh day in these words. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And he quotes Old Testament Scripture. Your footnote's probably give it to you. It's Genesis 2-2, where God created for six days. This is the Genesis account. Seventh day, he rested. Okay? It's the Sabbath rest. So now he's giving a second example. He's like, you remember the promised land? Our forefathers could have entered a rest In the Promised Land, unbelief, disobedience—they didn't—they didn't didn't enter the rest. Now he uses another example. He says, "Remember when God created the heavens and the earth, and the animal kingdom, and plant kingdom, and mankind in six days? All of that creation. On the seventh day, He rested. He rested. Now He's going to make the case that here's another important rest for us—the Sabbath rest. He mentions Sabbath rest." Uh, by name, further down in verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And the Sabbath rest was commandment number four, by the way. Out of the Ten Commandments, commandment number four was about honoring the Sabbath day, keeping it holy, because the Sabbath day was intended for us as a day of rest. In fact, Jesus said in Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In Mark 2, 27. Sabbath was made for the man for man. God actually put within his system of what is most beneficial for us, a Sabbath day of rest, one out of seven. Now, it's not a day in particular. I know some, you know, the strict Seventh-day Adventist friends, okay, they're going to be like, you know, we're, we're sticking with Saturday, that's the... It, The Sabbath is still Saturday, but it's the Sabbath rest is one out of seven. It's not a particular day. Ever since the early church celebrated the resurrection of Christ on the first day of the week, which is Sunday—it's not Monday, by the way, that's our first day of the work week—the first day of the week is Sunday— Ever since the early church celebrated the resurrection of Christ on Sunday, traditionally then, throughout the, the book of Acts and continuing in church history, the church has gathered on Sunday to celebrate the day of the resurrection of Christ. But technically, Saturday is still the Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. It's not about a day. The main thing is that God wants us to work within our schedule one out of seven when we're off, because we need it. Americans are the most overworked, and yet under-vacationed people in the modern industrialized world. Statistics bear this out. I have have a few for you. We work more hours, but we take less vacation time than any other industrialized nation. And despite all this extra work we're doing, we have lower middle-class incomes than we did 40 years ago when adjusted for inflation. Americans are working approximately 11 more hours per week now than they did in the 1970s. Yet the average income for middle-income families has declined by 13% when adjusted for inflation since the 1970s. On April the 6th, 1933, the United States Senate passed overwhelmingly a bill that would have made the standard work week. Are you ready for this? In 1933, the Senate got together when they actually agreed about something and said, you know what we should do? We should make the work week 30 hours a week. Wouldn't that be wonderful? 30 hours a week. The House of Representatives said, no, we don't like that. There's been gridlock ever since, friends. <sighs> Politics. You know, poly from the Greek word people and ticks from the word bloodsuckers. <laughs> anyway, it was supposed to be a 30-hour work week, but um, the bill failed and 5 years later in 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act passed, giving Americans a statutory 40-hour work week. And yet in the US today, Check this out, 85.8% of men and 66.5% of women work more than 40 hours per week. And we still can't manage to get it all done. As Americans, we pride ourselves on productivity. But at what cost? The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that 30% of Americans, or 40.6 million American adults, adults, are sleep-deprived. 40.6 million Americans are sleep-deprived, getting six or less hours of sleep a night compared to the recommended seven to nine hours per night. It it results in on-the-job accidents, auto accidents, weakened immune system, obesity, other physiological and psychological problems. The point is that God says, I want you to take one out of seven off. I want you to enter a physical rest. And I've said this before in making this comparison. Isn't it something how there are certain mechanisms within appliances that make sure they turn off when they're overheated? But people can't. You know, if you ever got your hair dryer going, you know, 90 miles an hour, it eventually be like too hot and shut off. If you tip over a space heater, it, it now they have that built in that way that it turns off so that when it gets overheated, it won't catch your house on fire. But Americans, you know, we don't, in Western culture, we don't know how to turn off. We don't know how to enter a Sabbath rest until you have a heart attack, and then you're permanently turned off, you know, and then hopefully you know to Jesus and go to heaven. But anyway, (laughs) the point is this. He talks here about how God created, and then he rested. And then he adds there in verse 9, we need to enter a Sabbath rest. But again, this is all pointing to a greater rest. He says, you remember how in our own history, God promised the promised land a lesser rest than The greater rest of knowing Jesus, and still the people disobeyed, and through their unbelief they didn't enter the rest. He says, remember how God created the heavens and the earth within six days? On the seventh day he rested. He set an example for us that we should rest. Not that God was tired. He just set an example for us that we should work that into our weekly system to be off. But he says, but listen, the reason that you don't do that is because of disobedience. It's the same factor. And yet, his point is, Even that's a lesser rest. Yes, we need a Sabbath rest because physically and mentally we need to recharge our batteries. But it's a lesser rest than the ultimate and greater rest, which is Jesus. Then he gets back here to verse 8 about Joshua. And he's going to, again, move back to this story of Joshua. Now, again, Joshua's the protege of Moses. So he's going to take the lead. God is assigning The lead to Joshua, and he takes it away from Moses, and says, "Joshua, now you're going to enter the people into the Promised. You're going to lead them into the Promised Land. They're going to enter their rest." Now, I want to point this out because this is important, and this is this is good to understand in relation to just Old Testament history in general. Because if you've ever felt sorry for Moses, and and I have, you know, when when you look at when you look at the whole story of Moses and and what he had to put up with, and just you know, can you imagine? I mean, forty years. Of like three million people complaining and whining constant, constantly. You think your teenagers are bad? Think, think three million of them for forty years, constantly just whining about this, whining about that. Why don't we have this? Why don't we have that? And and you know, we go to the pantry. There's nothing in the pantry. There's not, there's nothing in the refrigerator. There's nothing in, the, there's nothing in there. You know, and just constantly saying that. I'm sure that that doesn't ever happen at your home, but I remember, you know, when our kids were growing up, they're like, they're looking at the pantry, it's full of food. Like, there's nothing in here to eat. I did it too. I can remember, you know, looking in my refrigerator as keep growing up like, mom, there's nothing in here. And then what does every mom do? Like, well, well they're carrots. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. There's nothing to eat. So they're whining and they're complaining. And then in Numbers chapter 20, there's this moment where God says to Moses, I want you to speak to the rock and I'm going to gush forth water to supply water for the people. But Moses, in his anger, after dealing with them for like 40 years and in his frustration, he's like, ah, and so he takes his rod, the staff that he had, and he starts beating the rock. I mean, he just starts hitting it like, you guys want rocks? I mean, water? Yeah, that's what he wants to give them. You guys want water? All right, I'll give you water, you rebels. And he starts taking his staff. He's just like beating the rock, beating the rock. And then water gushes forth. And God says to Moses, because you have not properly represented me to the people, You will not take them into the promised land. His anger got the best of him. He didn't speak to the rock so that God's glory could be demonstrated. He beat the rock. In effect, the visuals of it was almost like he was cracking the rock himself with his staff, and that's why water gushed forth. So he deprived God of his glory in the moment, and God says, Moses, sorry, you're not going to take the people in the promised land. And you can read that story. It's in Numbers chapter 20. You can read that later, and you can think to yourself, It's a little harsh, but who am I to judge God by telling him that he's a little harsh? Here's the reality. Moses couldn't take take the people in because Moses represents the law. Moses represents the law. He was inspired by God to write the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Moses. He represents the law. Joshua would take the people into the Promised Land. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yahashua, often abbreviated. You know how we call, like if we, a guy's name Joshua, a lot of times we'll call him Josh. So Yehoshua in Hebrew is often abbreviated Yeshua. Who also was named Yeshua? Jesus. Jesus is an anglicized version of the Hebrew name. His name... His given Hebrew name, Jesus' given Hebrew name, was Yehoshua or Yeshua. Joshua, you see in the Old Testament, is a picture of Christ. He's a foreshadowing type of Christ. The reason why Moses couldn't take the people in was not just because he was disobedient. He was. But there's a greater picture to the story. God is communicating to all of us that the law will never take you into the rest We can never work our way to salvation. We can never work our way into the good graces of God because it's not about works. It's about grace. It's the exercise of our faith because of God's grace towards us. So Joshua is the picture of Christ. He takes the people into the promised land where they will ultimately experience their rest because it's grace that leads the way, not the law. So the next time you feel sorry for Moses, just realize the big picture because God took care of Moses. God buried Moses, and God took him to heaven, and Moses reappears on the Mount of Transfiguration. So Moses is good to go, and for all eternity he's, he's with the Lord, and, and we who know Christ shall see Moses one day along with all the other prophets, and it'll be a glorious time. But don't feel sorry for Moses, because the ultimate picture is it's never the law that takes you in. It's only the grace. It's Yahashua. It's ultimately Jesus who brings us into the greater rest. So the writer of Hebrews is using all this history, to paint that whole picture. There are different kinds of rests. Eleven times he uses that word here in chapter 3. The rest of the promised land, it's a lesser rest. The rest of the Sabbath, it's a lesser rest. The greater rest is that we enter into that relationship with Christ, knowing Him as our Savior. And he adds there, verse 11, again, I'll just read verse 11 again. Let us, therefore, make every effort every effort to enter that rest, talking about the ultimate rest, so that no one will fall by following their example, talking about the the Jewish people, their forefathers, who didn't set a good example of disobedience. Let me read verses 12 and 13. I'm going to save verse 14 because it really goes better with chapter 5. But let me, for the sake of the remaining time we have, just talk about verses 12 and 13. If you'll notice there in in your Bibles, verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. I want to focus just a little bit in the five minutes we have left on verse 12. Verse 13, by the way, let me just mention in passing, verse 13 can be a little scary, can it? Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Did you ever, you know, those of you who grew up in the church, I've asked this question before, but I remember learning, I don't know if it was just my own, I don't know where I picked it up, but I know a lot of other people that have thought this, that on the day of judgment, you know, everything is laid bare before the eyes of him, and and that you're standing with like however many people, thousands, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, whoever knows who is going to be. And then there's this big jumbotron and they replay your messed up life with all your sins so that everybody can just see everything you've done. And then you go, praise God, you're forgiven. You know, and, so, and I know a lot of people, have thought, how many of you thought like you're going to get the jumbotron judgment? Let me just see. Yeah, see, I know there's a lot of people. Forget it. Forget it. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Because this is what that verse means. Nothing is secret to God. He sees everything. He knows everything. We don't get by with anything because God sees it all and knows it all. So for that reason alone, we should walk circumspectly before God, humbly, contrite, and always quick to ask for forgiveness when we've sinned against him. But he's not going to replay all that. And the reason he's not going to replay all that is because he He forgives our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers our sins no more, meaning not that he's forgetful, but he no longer holds our sins against us. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says that love covers over a multitude of sins. Do you know there's a difference between covering up your sin and covering over your sin? When we cover up our sin, God cannot cover over our sin. You read Psalm 32, I encourage you to go home later, read Psalm 32, it's one of the penitent psalms of David, and it might have been one that he wrote after he was caught related to his adultery with Bathsheba, but Psalm 32 is a very contrite psalm that David writes, and he he talks about how 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 he does not cover up his sin, and he confessed it before God, and then God forgave him of his iniquity, forgave him of his sin. You see, when we don't cover up, God covers over by his blood and forgives our sins. But verse 12, we'll close on this. I just want to bullet point a couple of things that are important about the Bible. And I leave you with this, because there are uh, five different ways that the Bible is compared to different things that are beneficial to our lives. The first one is found right here in Hebrews 4.12. The Bible is compared to a double-edged sword. And he talks about how this double-edged sword penetrates dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And one of the benefits of the Bible is that it serves to be like a double-edged sword that cuts me open and convicts me. When you read your Bibles, allow it to speak to your heart. And sometimes it'll be very encouraging, and other times it'll be very convicting. Don't just read it for the encouragement. Also read it for the times that God will speak to you about the things that He wants to cut out of our hearts and out of our lives, because He will use the Bible to convict us, and surgically like a two-edged sword, cutting us open, convicting us, and dealing with the sins of our lives. Even the attitudes, He says there. It's not just what we do. It's sometimes even just the attitudes of our hearts, just bad attitudes, things that we think, and the way that we you know, have, have these wrong attitudes toward him and towards others. And so the Bible is good in that, in that regard. And so he compares it to a double-edged sword. But I want to give you four other quick references to other things the Bible is compared to. In Psalm 119, the Bible is compared to a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path that guides me. That verse says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. You can get guidance from God through the pages of, of His Word. Let it speak to you. Let it help to give you guidance and wisdom. In Jeremiah 23, 29, the Bible is compared to fire that refines me and a hammer that breaks up the hard places of my heart. That verse says this, "...is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces." You know, when fire is used To purify precious metal, the intensity of the heat causes the dross, the impurities, to float to the surface that it might be skimmed off. And there's this fire effect of God's Word. When we read our Bibles, it kind of like brings the junk of our lives to the top so that God can deal with those things. And there are other times where the Bible's like a hammer because we can get hard hearts about stuff. But when we read the Bible, it tenderizes us. And like a hammer, it breaks up the hard places of our heart. Two more things real quickly. It's also compared to water in Ephesians 5.26 that washes away the impurities of my heart. Paul wrote this in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word. And so there's this cleansing effect this purifying thing, it just washes over us. I mean, there's this... And many of you, I know you, you understand what I'm talking about. You can read your Bibles, and it just it just has this cleansing effect, like, oh, thank you, Lord, for your grace and your forgiveness, and how when I read your Word, it just washes over the impurities of my mind and my heart and my life. And then finally, last one, the Bible is compared to pure spiritual milk that nourishes me and helps me to grow. In 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And so it helps to mature us. We read our Bibles, we grow in our faith, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and it, it helps to nourish us and to mature us in our lives. All and up and up. Jump
1: in and you'll find the corn. Your new life. The book of Hebrews encourages its readers to stop relying on what they can do to be saved, known as living by the law. There's a better way, and it's through Jesus. Jesus came to earth and perfectly lived out His life, never wavering from the law and always showing love and kindness. He was perfect and was also the perfect sacrifice for sin, He obediently died in your place so that you wouldn't need to face the punishment your sins deserve. And all you need to do is accept it. Are you ready to take this step of faith? Jesus is ready and waiting for you to step away from your old life with loving arms wide open. If you're making a decision for your Savior today, please let us know. You can send an email to prayer at quarterstonechapel.net We'd like to encourage you to find a Bible-teaching church in your area right away. It will be a place where you can grow and learn and find the support of community, of family. You're now part of a family of faith, after all. If you happen to be in the Leesburg area, consider yourself invited to Cornerstone Chapel. We meet weekly for worship and fellowship after studying the Bible together. You'll be able to get more information at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc, that's CornerstoneConnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection.
0: They say you're a wandering soul.
1: That you've got no place to go. But still you
0: know. Still you know. You're not alone.